Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Biden urges Northern Ireland parties to restore power sharing. Italy declares a state of emergency to tackle a surge of migrants. Russia says it won't tolerate U.S. pressure over a detained Wall Street Journal reporter. Macron outlines the need for European sovereignty. Four Indian soldiers are killed in a Punjab army base shooting. Deutsche Bank will reportedly close its IT operations in Russia. A survey finds one in five Americans have a family member killed by guns. Trump's lawyer asks for a delay in a civil trial. NPR leaves Twitter. And China reports the world's first human bird flu death. Our top story, Biden urges Northern Ireland parties to restore power sharing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNN, CNBC, Reuters, and BBC News. During a speech in Belfast on Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden urged for a political compromise in Northern Ireland, calling on political leaders to restore their power-sharing agreement. Biden, who arrived in Belfast on Tuesday evening to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, also hinted that U.S. companies were prepared to triple their investment in the country's economy to $6 billion. The 1998 signing of the Good Friday Agreement marked the ending of three decades of sectarian violence known as the Troubles. The violence took place between largely Catholic Irish Republicans, who sought a united Ireland, and predominantly Protestant pro-British Unionists, who wished to remain part of the UK. Northern Ireland is part of the UK, while the Republic of Ireland remains part of the EU. The Good Friday Agreement established a power-sharing administration in Northern Ireland, that has been suspended since February 2022, as unionist parties refuse to take their seats and protest over the Northern Ireland Protocol. As part of his four-day trip, Biden spent just over half a day in Northern Ireland, where he met British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and leaders of Northern Ireland's main political parties, before leaving for the Irish Republic for two and a half days of speeches and meetings with officials and relatives. Biden's trip comes two weeks after MI5 said the terrorism threat level in Northern Ireland had increased due to a rise in activity by dissident Republicans, with an illegal parade held in Londonderry on Monday, which saw petrol bombs thrown at police cars. The following day, police found four suspected pipe bombs inside the grounds of the city cemetery in Derry. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by AP News. Biden has sent a clear message to the Democratic Unionist Party about the need to get back to work and restore the country's power-sharing dynamic. With his very strong track record in supporting the peace accord, his guidance is fitting. However, the future of Northern Ireland is in the hands of the Assembly, and they need to get it together and do what's best for the country. Cross that with the establishment critical narrative from The Independent. Despite Biden's optimistic speech, the political situation in Northern Ireland hasn't changed, and power sharing isn't the answer. Biden, touting his Irish heritage to legitimize his opinion, is dangling the promise of money to push his own agenda. But the words of a foreign politician who is so clearly pro-nationalist, anti-unionist, and anti-British won't change anything. 
And we've got a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 35% chance that Northern Ireland will hold a reunification referendum before 2030. I love how they call three decades of sectarian violence, eh, the troubles. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain modesty, but there's there's also a certain arrogance and like you you know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's 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 the troubles. Oh, you know, it's yes. not a trouble, it's the trouble. The troubles. Yeah. We know what we mean. <laughs> Wanna help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. In our next story, Italy declares a state of emergency to tackle its migrant surge. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, DW.com, BBC News, and The Straits Times. On Tuesday, Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's government declared a six-month state of emergency, backed by 5 million euros, roughly 5.5 million U.S. dollars, in funding to help the country face a surge in migrants arriving on its southern shores. The emergency funding comes as Italy has received more than 31,000 migrants so far this year, compared to roughly 7.9,000 at this point last year. The money will help Maloney's government set up more migrant reception centers, as well as repatriate those not allowed to stay. Italy has received 3,000 migrants in just the last three days, with a number of boats arriving on the island of Lampedusa, and the nation's Coast Guard has rescued around 2,000 people since Friday. The shelter on Lampedusa, with a capacity of 350 to 400 people, has been overwhelmed by the recent arrivals, even after ferrying hundreds to Sicily and the mainland on Tuesday. Authorities hope to ferry 400 more, weather permitting. Following a deadly shipwreck off the coast of the southern region of Calabria on February, Maloney urged the EU to help slow migration. Maloney herself has imposed harsher prison sentences for human traffickers. This comes as Italy's migration body reported that during the first three months of 2023, 441 deaths had been recorded in the central Mediterranean, and that delays in state-led rescues saw at least 127 dead. Most migrants are from sub-Saharan Africa and use Tunisia as a launching point to Italy. Thanks for those facts, Adam. The National Herald brings us the right narrative spin. Right-wing Maloney isn't the only one calling for a continent-wide effort to deter and deport migrants who are ineligible to stay. EU officials themselves have pointed out that only 21% of ineligible migrants are sent back to their home countries. And in only 60% of cases do authorities contact those countries regarding repatriation. Italy has faced the brunt of this crisis for years, and it's time the 27-member bloc step up to help. And that's followed by a left narrative provided by Amnesty International. While Maloney's government uses tragedy to call for inhumane deportations, the real solution to this issue is investing in safe, legal routes to Italy. So long as these asylum seekers are deemed illegal immigrants, they will continue to take unofficial dangerous trips across the sea, leading to more and more preventable deaths. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 2% chance that any of Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and or Germany will leave the EU before the year 2027. 
Russia won't tolerate U.S. pressure over the captive Wall Street Journal reporter, according to their deputy foreign minister. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Yahoo News, CNN, NBC News, and Ukranska Pravda. Sergei Ryabkov, Russia's deputy foreign minister, said on Wednesday that Russia was considering granting U.S. diplomats consular access to Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia on espionage charges, but warned that Moscow will not tolerate any attempts from the U.S. to pressure it over the issue. Ryabkov added that it had no significance what status they assigned to this person in Washington. We will act in accordance with our own internal needs, norms, and laws that apply in this situation and nothing more. The comments come after the U.S. State Department officially designated Gershkovich as wrongfully detained by Russia and called on it to provide consular access to him earlier in the week. Vedant Patel, a State Department spokesman, said, It is a violation of Russia's obligations under our consular convention and a violation against international law. We have stressed the need for the Russian government to provide this access as soon as possible. On Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden called Gershkovich's family. A statement from the family read, We appreciate President Biden's call to us today, assuring us that the U.S. government is doing everything in its power to bring him home as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, a video shared on social media this week appeared to show a Russian soldier beheading a Ukrainian serviceman with a knife. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky issued a strong statement condemning the act on Wednesday and called on world leaders to react appropriately. Elsewhere, Sergei Aksenov, head of the Russia-appointed administration in Crimea, said the peninsula will not hold a military parade to commemorate Victory Day, marking the Soviet's defeat of Nazi Germany on May 1st this year. It follows similar moves announced by officials of the Russian border regions of Kursk and Belgorod, who stated they did not want to provoke the enemy with an accumulation of military personnel and equipment. Thank you, Scott. We have a pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. Russia's charges of espionage against Evan Gershkovich are baseless and nothing more than an attack on journalism and dissent. He is being wrongfully detained and the U.S. government is doing everything in its power to have him released. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia is acting in full accordance with local and international law with respect to Evan Gershkovich. It will not tolerate attempts from the U.S. government to exert unjustified pressure on Russia over the handling of this case. And the nerds of Metaculous Prediction community have an opinion. They say there's a 50% chance that The Economist will rank Russia as a democracy in its democracy index by August 2052. Macron outlines a need for European sovereignty. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW.com. NL Times, France 24, Voice of America, South China Morning Post, and Politico. On Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron outlined his vision of greater European sovereignty in a keynote speech at the Nexus Institute in The Hague during a visit to the Netherlands. Macron arrived in Amsterdam on Tuesday morning for a two-day visit at the invitation of King Willem-Alexander, the first official state visit by a French president to the Netherlands in 23 years, reportedly will include various bilateral talks on sustainability and greater European independence. During his speech, Macron said that the continent should maintain close ties with its allies, but that Europe needed to choose its partners and, quote, shape our own destiny instead of being only bystanders in the dramatic evolution of this world. 
the French president stressed that both the COVID pandemic and the Ukraine war had underscored the need for greater European independence in key areas such as trade, competitiveness, and European industrial policy. Pointing to the need to boost European industrial production, Macron also called for a new strategic approach to achieve greater autonomy in the energy sector after Europe had largely freed itself from its reliance on Russian energy supplies. Macron's remarks come after he said in an interview Sunday following a three-day trip to China that Europeans should avoid being, quote, America's followers and reject being drawn into a confrontation between China and the U.S. over Taiwan. All right, we have an establishment critical narrative from Politico. While Macron's recent remarks are causing a stir, his call for more European strategic autonomy ultimately only reflects the position of a growing number of EU leaders with respect to Washington. The U.S. remains the EU's most important ally, but a so-called partnership that is limited to complete submission to U.S. positions is not in Europe's strategic interest and must therefore be rejected. And NPR has crafted a pro-establishment narrative to back that up. Macron's renewed call for more European sovereignty, also towards the U.S., only shows his detachment from reality, as it certainly does not reflect sentiment across European leadership. However, even though his statement should certainly not be taken lightly in Washington, it's not the first time Macron tries to distinguish himself by calling for more European autonomy. The U.S.-EU alliance will certainly get over it. My uh, brother-in-law met Emmanuel Macron one time in uh, Manhattan. Was it at a Macroni grill? Yeah, how'd you know? They've got that, that never-ending pasta bar. You can't pass that up. Four soldiers are killed in a Punjab army base shooting in India. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, The Hindu, Hindustan Times, NDTV, MSN, and Al Jazeera. Four Indian Army soldiers were killed in a shooting while sleeping in a barracks from inside the Bathinda military station in Punjab early Wednesday morning. Punjab police ruled out the incident as a terror attack, instead calling it a case of fratricide. In a military context, an armed services member killing a member of the same side. While the military base has been cordoned off and sealed, an investigation is underway to establish what happened. On Monday, an assault rifle with 28 bullets reportedly went missing. Of the 28 missing bullets, 19 have been recovered from the barracks, suggesting an army soldier possibly opened fire at fellow soldiers. Initial reports claim two unidentified masked men in plain clothes carrying an assault rifle and an axe, respectively, were involved in the massacre and are missing. According to government data, 18 incidents of fratricide were reported in the Indian Army and two in the Indian Air Force between 2014 and 2021. The Bathinda military station is located about 280 kilometers, or 174 miles, north of the national capital, New Delhi. The shooting occurred as the state was on high alert a day before Baisakhi, an annual Sikh festival. Thank you, Scott. The print has provided us with a narrative A on this story. The Bathinda killings have once again raised the question of why fratricide incidents occur in the Indian armed forces so often. Because guarding the border comes at a high human cost, there is an urgent need to professionally analyze the issue and adopt measures to positively address soldiers' high-stress levels. This is of concern to defense forces, but has implications for India's national security in general. And Narrative B comes from Forum IAS. 
While the number of fratricides within the Indian armed forces is concerning, it's disingenuous to claim that nothing is being done. The government has fully recognized the issue and has implemented a multi-pronged strategy to address it, which includes not only improving the conditions of personnel, but also introducing mental health initiatives. While fratricide cannot be eradicated overnight, the rate at which it occurs has already declined in recent years. Deutsche Bank is reportedly going to close its IT operations in Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Bloomberg, and Financial Times. The Financial Times reported on Wednesday that Deutsche Bank is winding down its remaining software technology operations in Moscow and St. Petersburg, a move that will end its two decades of reliance in Russian IT expertise in the next six months. While Germany's biggest lender hasn't yet formalized the decision to completely shutter its IT operations in Russia, the move is reportedly a done deal internally. A spokesman for the bank confirmed that it's looking for ways to minimize business disruption as well as de-risk its operations in the country, as the European Central Bank has allegedly been pressuring leaders to cut risks related to Russia. Opened in 2001, Deutsche's IT center in Russia has become increasingly important over the past decade, as the bank started a process of, quote, nearshoring IT capabilities closer to Germany to cut costs. However, in a surprise move last year, the German bank vowed to reduce its business in Russia as some investors and politicians criticized its relationship in the wake of the war in Ukraine. At the outset of the war, Deutsche Bank employed 1,500 people in its Russian technology center. Last year, it quietly relocated around 700 of them to a new Berlin center and has offered individual severance packages to the 500 IT experts still left on the payroll in Russia. Thanks for laying out the facts, Adam. We have an anti-Russia narrative straight from the horse's mouth at Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank has rightfully made multiple statements condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine and has been working to wind down its Russia-related activities. While completely shuttering all Russian business couldn't happen overnight, the bank has taken the necessary step to reduce its dealings and reliance on Russian technology. And that's followed up with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. Deutsche Bank has been waffling as it looks to comply with the West's anti-Russian stance while maintaining its financial benefits from Russian technology. That's why the German leader quietly offered to relocate hundreds of its Russian employees. Deutsche Bank wants to leave Russia, but it needs Russians to grow its technology center. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 13% chance that Deutsche Bank will collapse or be rescued before June of 2023. Adam, what does it say about me that the beginning of the sentence, Deutsche Bank has been waffling, just made me hungry? <laughs> you're, you're thinking of the wrong country. You need a you need a Belgian waffle. Right. I need Brussels Bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you better. go. Brussels Bank has been waffling. <laughs> a report claims that one in five Americans has a family member killed by guns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, the Kaiser Family Foundation, New York Post, Forbes, Barron's, and Connecticut News Junkie. According to data published Tuesday by the Kaiser Family Foundation, more than half of U.S. adults recently surveyed claimed they or a family member have experienced a gun-related incident. The data comes amid a wave of continued gun violence in America. The survey took place from March 14th through the 23rd, 
with 19% saying they had a family member that had been killed by a gun, including suicide. 31% had family who had been threatened with a gun, and 17% had personally witnessed someone being injured from a gun. It also found that 41% lived in a household with guns, and 75% said that their firearms were either unlocked, loaded, or alongside ammunition. Black and Hispanic adults were over three times as likely to be worried daily or almost daily about family being victims of gun violence. 84% reported having taken steps to protect themselves or their family from gun violence, including talking to family and children about gun safety, 58%, avoiding large crowds, 35%, or purchasing a weapon such as a knife or pepper spray, 44%. According to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive, there were 44,249 gun violence deaths in the U.S. in 2022, of which 20,249 were homicide, accidental, or the result of self-defense, and over 24,000 were suicides. So far in 2023, it is estimated that 11,631 people have been killed by guns. The Gun Violence Archive has also claimed that since the start of 2023, the U.S. has averaged more than one mass shooting per day, defined by the organization as an event in which at least four people have been killed or injured. Wow. Scott, thank you for the facts of that grim story. We're going to start off with a left narrative provided by Courier-Journal. As gun violence continues in the U.S., it seems that the country, especially the GOP, is locked in a cycle of sharing thoughts and prayers, implementing little meaningful change, and forgetting about the issue until the next tragedy occurs. There is no end in sight, and communities are becoming weaker as they begin to normalize such events. While there must be more rational thinking and policy action regarding restricting gun violence, sadly, neither seems to be on the horizon. And we have a right narrative spin from The Federalist. Modern rhetoric on gun violence does not match reality, and the left's gun control agenda is even more radical than they claim. Gun violence is a scapegoat targeted against rural conservatives, when in reality, such violence occurs mostly in Democrat-run urban areas, which are inundated with the corrupt and disastrous culture the party promotes. The best way to combat these threats is to vote for real conservatives, who are stewards of the Second Amendment and self-defense. And the Metaculous Prediction community have a nerd narrative saying there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before 2025. Trump's lawyer is asking for a delay of his civil trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, The Independent, and Fox News. On Tuesday, former U.S. President Donald Trump's lawyer, Joseph Takapina, requested a one-month delay in the civil trial regarding columnist E. Jean Carroll's claims that Trump raped her in 1996. The trial is scheduled to begin on April 25th. In a letter, Takapina asked for a, quote, cooling-off period because of the, quote, recent deluge of prejudicial media coverage surrounding Trump since he was indicted last month on 34 felony counts related to a payment made to an adult film star, Stormy Daniels. Previously, Carol sued Trump in November of 2019, claiming he defamed her by denying the allegation. That case is still pending. Now Carol is suing Trump under a New York law that allows survivors of sexual assault to seek damages after the statute of limitations has expired on the alleged criminal offense, 
accusing him of battery and defamation. The more recent suit revolves around an October 2022 social media post in which Trump denied knowing Carol and said he, quote, would have no interest in knowing her if he ever had the chance. He also called her previous lawsuit a complete con job. Okay, thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a Democratic narrative from the Washington Post. This is just Trump's latest bad faith attempt to delay this trial, begging the question of whether the former president has something to hide. Regardless, he made a series of defamatory comments about Carol, which is the basis of her suit, and eventually he's going to have to face the music. And Washington Examiner has a pro-Trump narrative. Trump has the right to an impartial trial, but the current politically charged media frenzy makes the jury ripe for prejudice an environment Democrats are seemingly willing to exploit in order to further their persecution of Trump. Takapina's request is completely legitimate and should be seriously considered. And finally, we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 33% chance Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Oh, that number just keeps going up little by little, doesn't it? It does seem like it's creeped up a little bit, I think. Over this year, it, it creeped down a couple ticks and then has gone back up. But yeah, it's been hovering around. Yeah, it was around. like in the mid-20s, I think, last time I remember yeah. or something like that. I mean, it so makes it's... sense if you're literally in a courtroom. Like, that, that, that's that got to that's gotta push it up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. They should take it easy on Trump. You know, one trial at a time. You can't just push all your trials together. I mean, give the guy a break. Yeah, it's true. Right. NPR to leave Twitter after labeling dispute. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, NBC, Guardian, TechCrunch, and Breitbart. National Public Radio announced Wednesday it will no longer use Twitter to distribute its content after the platform began labeling the news outlet as state-affiliated media, which is typically assigned to publications like Russia's RT and China's Xinhua. Twitter later changed the label to government-funded media. NPR accused the Elon Musk-owned company of falsely implying that the outlet is not editorially independent. NPR added that it won't put its content on a platform that seeks to undermine its credibility. NPR is a nonprofit media organization that syndicates more than 1,000 local public radio stations across the U.S. that receive about 13% of their funds from the federally funded Corporation for Public Broadcasting and other state and federal government sources. Twitter says the government-funded label applies to any news outlet receiving some or all funding from the government, which may have varying degrees of government involvement over editorial content. NPR Chief Executive Officer John Lansing said the idea of returning to Twitter would take some time to understand whether Twitter can be trusted again. After hitting NPR with the government-funded label, Twitter also added the BBC to the list. However, Musk has since said he will change the label, following an interview with the outlet, which objected to the move. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start off with a narrative A provided by Caitlin Johnstone. If anything, Twitter's state-affiliated media label has not been applied enough. In addition to NPR, the label should be pinned to accounts for the CIA-created U.S. propaganda outlets like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and Voice of America. This designation should also be tagged on other outlets which receive far more state funding than NPR. And NPR itself brings us narrative B. All media outlets are funded by someone, so the only question is whether a news outlet is independent, and NPR certainly is. Throughout its history, NPR has remained objective in reporting nationally and internationally. 
Just because an outlet receives some government funding doesn't mean it puts its journalistic ethics on hold. There's also a Narrative C provided by Newsweek. This label serves no purpose other than to satisfy Musk's axe to grind with NPR after the organization decided not to cover live remarks last week by former President Trump. Musk is using Twitter to play politics and punish those whose values don't align with his. Well, I think I just learned something new about Musk. What's that? I don't think he watched Sesame Street as a kid. I swear if I've had a nickel for every time someone, I heard the words Corporation for Public Broadcasting, I'd be able to start my own biased radio station. Yeah, exactly. Everybody knows that that Sesame Street is brought to us by the letter C and the number four. Every media outlet is funded by some combination of letters and numbers, so. And in our final story today, China has reported its first human death from the bird flu. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNBC, South China Morning Post, and La Presenta Latina Media. A 56-year-old woman from the southern Chinese province of Guangdong is the first person known to have died from a type of bird flu that is rare in humans. H3N8, the World Health Organization, said in a statement on Tuesday. The woman was the third person to contract the H3N8 strain, which doesn't appear to spread between people, but the first to die from it. The World Health Organization said the woman, who had pre-existing medical conditions, including cancer, was admitted to a hospital with severe pneumonia after falling ill in February and died last month. All three people who contracted H3N8 in China are thought to have been exposed to the virus at live poultry markets. Sporadic infections in people with bird flu occur frequently in China, where avian flu viruses constantly circulate in huge populations of poultry and wild birds. Samples collected from a wet market visited by the woman before she became ill were positive for influenza A, or H3, indicating that may have been the source of infection. The World Health Organization said the likelihood of human-to-human spread of H3N8 is low, but it also emphasized the importance of global surveillance to detect any changes in influenza viruses, as these viruses constantly evolve. The World Health Organization recommends countries encourage the public to avoid contact with live poultry markets and surfaces contaminated by animal feces to minimize the threat of contagion. Thanks for that grim harbinger, Adam. We have an anti-China narrative from Daily Mail. China was late in reporting this case for a month, and hopefully the consequences won't be the same as when Beijing delayed its reporting of the first COVID cases. We already saw H5N1 cause the world's biggest bird flu outbreak, and it's difficult to predict what will become of H3N8 as vaccine makers wait at the ready in case of a sustained zoonotic spillover event. And CTV News has a pro-China narrative for this story. There's no cause for alarm or blame. It's very rare for H3N8 to infect humans, and the U.S. is prepared for fighting bird flu because of its experience with H5N1. As long as people adhere to the guidelines from the PRC's Center for Disease Control and Prevention, including minimizing exposure to poultry farms and bird markets and avoiding eating undercooked poultry, this outbreak can be contained to just birds. And finally, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says that there's a 49% chance that at least 10 countries 
will ratify a new international treaty on pandemic prevention and preparedness before 2025. The closest I have to this experience, I remember swine flu was a big thing back in 2010. I got what I believe was swine flu, and I have never been so sick. So did you take on a uh, a pig-like uh, demeanor? Yes. My tail got all curly. It was weird. You already kind of had a natural curl to your tail before, though. Didn't I, I, you? That's a wave, more. You know, it's that. That's more of a, a wave. Oh, you, yeah. you you had that. You had that done at a at a salon. It's a personal choice, and I prefer not to talk. Okay, about Okay, but you know, the flat nose is going a bit too far. It is a little too far. Yeah, <laughs> talk about Orwellian. Yikes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 13th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.